Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. It's the final word story time, 152. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon with you for that. This is the second in our run of revisit episodes that we promised where things got a little bit beyond us during the ashes and, and the months since or the weeks since. And uh, we've gone back to. Uh, to answer all of those that we didn't get right the first time around. So there's another stack of numbers today, more than we would ordinarily do, but hopefully that'll make for lots of fun as well. Hello, Jeff. Well, hopefully we'll we'll keep the foot down and we'll skip through this in no time at all because every time we say that, we end up doing um, an incredibly <laughs> lengthy show. But there is a lot of cricket history. There's a lot of other history of other things as well. This is the thing that you learn. The more that you learn, the more you realise you don't know. The, uh, the What did they say? The greater the spotlight, the broader the circumference of the mm. unknown. Mm. Yeah, it does feel that way sometimes. I, I We used to say to each other privately that gee, there might be a point where this show becomes redundant, like we might have kind of mm-hmm. done all the things that are noteworthy. That's absolutely not the case. We could do a thousand of these and there'd still be stories that would be more mm. than worthy uh, as far as our weekend show is concerned. Before we get into it, I should say that our efforts to get people to do the London Marathon have already started for next year with the Lord's Tabs. I um, met with the Tabs a couple of weeks ago. They are thrilled with what we were able to do in Edinburgh this year and, and London as well. So I just want to stress this one point. Getting a London Marathon spot is basically impossible if you're a 
you know, regular run-of-the-mill punter. You need to win a ballot from memory. You need to be supported by a charitable partner. And the tabs are enthusiastic about including as many final word runners as they can. So if you've always wanted to do the London Marathon, there's enough of a run-up, I suppose, between September and April to do that, I reckon, especially if you're an existing runner and if you're keen on a marathon, mm-hmm. you probably are. So let me know as soon as you can. Callum Piera has been in touch with us, Jeff, asking to do precisely that. So he'll be involved next year, as will Terry Hogan, who's been also in touch in the last couple of weeks signalling uh, his ambition. I convinced about four people uh, after hours on Friday night to do the Edinburgh half with us, including Toby Trumper. So he'll be there with us um, doing the, the half, or indeed maybe the full at Edinburgh um, on the long weekend in May, the second long weekend in May in Edinburgh next year. So lots of activity around that. But yes, get in touch now. Our goal is to have 50 people running at Edinburgh and as many as possible in London as well. Uh, and that's all, of course, for our dear friends at the Lord's Tabs who do such great work. I was meant to be, well, I was hoping to be at a golf day of theirs today, Jeff, but the stars just didn't quite align for me on that front. I know that's something you would never consider doing, being involved in a, you know, it's going to have a corporate golf day, albeit one that's involved oh. with the tabs. You were just not wanting to be part of it. Uh, look, I, I would, um, if, God, I mean, that's a difficult one. Do you want to help people raise some money for a good cause? Well, yes, but do you want to also sell out everything that you believe in, everything that you hold dear? <laughs> I mean, there are things that I don't want to do and those include running 42 kilometres. So I do not wish to run a marathon, but I would be very happy to go along and support other people running a marathon, say encouraging things to them, hold out drink bottles and so on. Do I want to encourage people to play golf? Do I want to reward that kind of bad behaviour? I don't. I don't. I don't want to do that. So uh, am I going to pick it, it and protest it? Probably not because the LTs are doing great work in the community. But I don't know. Am I going to get out there on the greens? And I can't. I can't. I just have to, you know, Johnny Bear, throw myself off the tee. I wouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> the, the nice twist on this, which I thought you'd appreciate, Jeff, is that uh, David Gower is the president of the Tabs. He comes to everything, right? He, you know, uh, mm-hmm. umpires every cricket game. He speaks at every luncheon. Like, He's a great president for the Lord's Taverners. And even he draws the line at golf. So he wasn't there today either because he's not a golfer. Really? I just took it as assumed that Gow would be a golfer, but evidently not. So. Ah, <laughs> I wondered why I liked him. There you go. <laughs> the, the, obviously a man of distinction, taste and principle who draws the line at such barbaric activity. So in the short term, sign up to the tabs in the show notes. Uh, in the medium term, we're going to be launching a final word tabs membership category, which is quite exciting. So more on that in a couple of weeks and in the... I wouldn't say super long term, but May next year, April next year for London, May next year for Edinburgh. Do get in touch as soon as you can and we'll start reserving those places in the London and Edinburgh Marathon and Half Marathon. And in the very, very short term, let's play a little bit of Nerd Pledge. It's a bit late to give it the full Nerd Pledge, Mm -hmm. but it is Nerd Pledge. It is Nerd Pledge. It's a game that we play with the nice people on the internet who fund this program by sending in contributions, not in traditional numbers that currency might usually arrive in, but in specific ones, ones that Robert Dippier Domenico might read out during a Dimmies and Forges spotlight sale. Numbers, very specific because they relate to cricket in some way and we have to work out what the number means. Nick Dempsey, first cab of the revisits, rank with his $3.25. Righto, Nick. Yes, you've got a clue here which Jeff's going to tackle. Thanks for the story of Broad's multiple mishaps. Is there a cricketer on the planet with as big a selective memory, he poses? Uh, You were right. 3.25 is uh, about an aggregate T20 total. I live in Perth and I think it was around eight or nine years ago. So we told the tale of uh, a T20 with an aggregate total of 325, which was when the Netherlands beat England in 2009. Ah, yes, 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 yes. 
something that happened not that long after 2009 because I, 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 I'm sorry to report, Nick Dempsey, that perhaps you have aged a little more than you thought you had. It was not eight or nine years ago. It was almost 11 years ago that this particular match took place in Perth. It was not a final of the Big Bash as I thought it might have been. It was a semi-final, the second... BBL, the second time they played it. So the Champions Trophy is still around. Shane Warne is still playing for the Melbourne Stars, who travel to Perth. There are a lot of final word faves in this game, Adam. So um, Cameron White opens up for the Melbourne Stars, Tonks 88, Brad Hodge makes 70. They hit five sixes each. Mm. They blaze 183 in 18 overs because they get they have a rain delay in the middle. So shortened innings, massive score. To give you a sense of the time, Michael Beer and Brad Hogg, uh, the spinners uh, for the Perth Scorchers, they have a, a particularly old school sort of batting lineup. Sean Marsh is there, Adam Voges, Mike Hussey is still playing for the Scorchers, hasn't even gone to the Sydney Thunder yet. Simon Kadich is captaining, Marcus North is there. Um, so it's, it's that real old WA sort of old firm. And they have some more rain and then they have some more rain. So they get reduced to 17 overs, then they get reduced to 13 overs and they're set 142 in 13 overs. So that's 78 balls to get 142 runs. And Sean Marsh up top goes the tonk. 68 from 40 balls. It gets them going. And he particularly takes a fancy to uh, a player named Alex Keith. Do you remember Alex Keith? Played footy. He did. He was he was in the startup intake for the Gold Coast Suns in 2009, then flipped to a Cricket Victoria contract and yeah. uh, tried to make it as a cricketer for five or six years and then started playing local footy in Adelaide and ended up getting drafted by the Crows in 2017 and moved to the Bulldogs in 2019. Um, last I read, he's going up for a new contract. So he's, 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 he's managed to make a success of his belated football career. He's, he's the Harold Fry of... The modern age, if you will. You found that photo, um, by the, the cre- way, the Harold Fry photo. That um, and and didn't we yeah. identify the person via Twitter? Didn't we uh, get linked in with the person whose helmet was whacked off as well? So yeah, so Greg Tibbetts, <laughs> well, so to speak. Um, Greg Tibbetts runs the Greg Chapel Cricket Centre these days. He's he's in charge of. Um, so that was him in the eighties, having the protective gear blasted away, if you will, by by Harry Fry. <laughs> his helmet wiped um, off. Bloody hell! <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Um, it's it's a very, it's an impossible sport to talk about without having it turn into innuendo. There's no way around it. So Alex Keith, Alex Keith has a bowl and. Alex Keith has a um, a pretty brief professional cricket career. Doesn't play a lot in any of the formats. Bowled a bit, bowled mediums. It does take four first class wickets in his seven games. So you know, not not a part part timer. But he bowls this over for the Melbourne Stars, and he gets hit for twenty seven in the over. He will play five T twenty professional matches in his career, and that's the only over he will bowl. So he's got a first class average of eighteen. And he's got one over in his T20 career that went for 27. <laughs> no, 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 no average, no strike rate, economy rate, not so hot. Anyway, Marsh is doing that. Herschel Gibbs is playing in this Perth Scorchers team as well. Remember when that was happening? Mm, mm. Um, strange, strange times back then. He's out cheaply. Nathan Coulton Isle, they send up to be a pinch hitter at number three. He makes a golden duck. If you're going to make a shit score as a pinch hitter, you might as well do it quickly. Mike Hussey is keeping wicket for the Perth Scorchers. I mean, it's just this, the whole thing's weird, right? So with Voges, he gets them close. They need 10 off the last over. Shane Warne is playing, hasn't bowled in the innings so far and decides he's not going to bowl this last over. Or does he decide it? Because this is curious. James Faulkner's going to bowl the last over, but 
This was, I don't know if you remember this, you probably weren't paying attention um, to, to in January 2013, you probably had other things on your mind with a, a federal election coming up in May, if, if memory serves. There was some, some, some fiddling around with captains. Remember when they used to suspend captains for slow over rates? Crazy, crazy thing that used to happen back in the day. So Shane Warne was on probation, was on like on the edge where if they had another slow over rate, he was going to be suspended as the captain of the stars. So he got Cameron White to start being captain for the next three or four games. And then Cameron White was on the verge of being suspended because they kept having slow over rates. So they got James Faulkner to captain this game. <laughs> so both White and Warne are playing but they're both temporarily not captains. And after this season, Cricket Australia says, uh, fuck this, <laughs> cut out this bullshit. And they brought in regulations to say that you couldn't just jump in and out of captaincy as you saw fit. You, there were more stringent rules about giving up captaincy or whatever it may be. So, but, but in this season, they took full advantage of it. So the notional skipper is Faulkner, who's bowling the last over. They take seven runs off the first five balls, so they need three to win off the last ball, two to tie, and all three of the captains and non-captains are having a powwow at the top of the bowler's mark. So Warren's there, White's there, and Faulkner's there talking about what they're going to do, where they're going to put the field, all the rest of it. He runs in. He bowls the perfect wide Yorker right on the tram tracks. Hussey misses it. They run through for a bye, but it's not enough. And then the umpire's like, hang on, fellas, you've only got three in the circle. Oh, they had, they had three captains setting the field and not one of them noticed that they'd only put three in the ring. So it's a no ball and they've run the bye, which means they've tied the game. They need one to win. He's got to bowl it again and Hussey whacks him over mid-off for four and win the game. And the, the collective, the aggregate for the match is 325 runs. I'm sure Nick Dempsey was there and that is the story of the 3-2-5. Brilliant. Uh, just two things, Jeff. First of all, how did you find that? Because I had a, quite, a poke around this and I couldn't quite mm-hmm. show your workings. When trying to, through the search engines and so on, sort out aggregate yep. for a game, this is something that's tripped me up in the past. Is there a way of automating it? They don't it? exist. Okay. No, you can, right. you can do it for international matches with a lot of fiddling with, with the filters in order to, to try to cough you up the, the full total, but you can't do it with domestic games unless you have access to the military-grade kind of stats yes. software that increasingly we probably should have for this program but we don't so because I had the clue about eight or nine years ago I looked at those seasons and manually looked at every Perth Scorchers game and worked out whether they were going to be close to 325 or not Um, and then expanded my search in either direction until I until I found it you've you've got to it's like the 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 snail shell thing you spiral until you eventually hit on what you're looking for yeah I know that Price as well. Okay, thank you, Nick. Great number to start with, 325. Second up is Stu G with 248. Jeff, he's got a clue for me. He does. I like to read it as Stug. Stug, <laughs> 248. Uh, thanks for the trip down memory lane, he says, to one of the quintessential Bevan innings, which is what we were talking about when we first tried to solve this clue. That was the total that Australia chased down against New Zealand in 2002. I too recall watching that game on television, following which I wished I had been born left-handed and talented. Uh, That was not the 248 I had in mind, but I like your offering much better. Well, thank you, Stu. For the sake of making lives easier, I had been thinking of the ING Cup final of the following season, having just watched my beloved Wacker boys 
dominate both domestic finals again this season just gone. Living in Brisbane at the time, it was one of many ding-dong battles I witnessed at the Gabba that decade between stacked WA and Queensland sides and one that set my cricket addiction full. Yeah, so we, we, we placed these next to each other on purpose. Uh, one uh, win for the Scorchers followed by a famous win for the Warriors as they were known then and probably still known now. I think still some are. of the nicknames yeah. changed, but the Western Warriors have lasted the test of time. This is kind of for me when the Mercantile Mutual Cup began or became rather the ING Cup. And I see that as the end of my childhood. You know, I think of that being a dividing line from youth to adult. I reckon the first ING season might have indeed been just before I turned 18. So this is around that time, 2001, 2002, and no better way um, than time stamping my own life, uh, far more effective than, you know, the day I turned 18 and went to Wild Bills in Southland Shopping Centre the night I turned 18. I remember seeing um, a television journalist out on the piss and um, talking to them about all things football. Little did I know that it would be the proprietor I'd end up working with on SEN many years later. There you go. But yeah, the, the Mercantile Mutual sort of never grabbed me. Uh, sorry, rather, the ING never grabbed me quite the same way that the Mercantile Mutual did. So I don't remember this game. However, however, the summer of 2003, 2004, I did attend a lot of games because that was my first year of university. As I'm sure I've said on the mm-hmm. podcast before, I used to go to the G pretty much every playing day of that of that summer I would take my university books with me or more realistically I'd take a scoring pattern and score at the game itself which is again you know, going back to why I was so popular in that part of my life I'm sure but yeah this extended to one day cricket in addition to the the, the four day stuff typically the, the one day games then were played on Sundays at the G I remember I think it was that season watching Nathan Horrocks look like Ashwin like and nearly Victoria out to win a game and even though uh, Victoria had won the last round against WA they fell one point short of the final this was in the era where first simply played second in the final and there was no additional postseason so to speak it was to be played at the Gabba they were the powerhouse team in four day cricket not quite so much in in white ball cricket at that point but WA uh, were the second seed and it's the 29th of February 2004 which is interesting to me as well because there aren't many 29th February of course that's a a rare date Sean Abbott it's birthday, isn't it? So I think Dan Cherney said on Twitter recently that... Um, that How know, do you know that off the top of your head? That, that it was Sean Abbott's birthday. Yeah. Because Cherney joked on Twitter when Abbott made the World Cup squad that he's the first seven-year-old to make a World Cup squad or something like that, which I thought was quite clever. Anyway, yeah, so this would have been, what, 29 Feb 2000? This would have been the weekend before we were back to uni, I suppose, Jeff, because it was always the first week of March where... Is that right? Have I got that right? First week of March, yeah. lectures yeah, and shoots and all the rest of it. Of yeah. So, you know, again, I may not have been paying attention, but I certainly was um, around that summer a lot. Um, Queensland bat first and get 244. All the usual suspects chipping in. Stuart Law makes a half century. Jimmy Ma, 44. Clint Perrin, 57. We come back to him later. But they're bowled out in the 50th over by WA, so they don't quite maximise where they could have gotten to. Kate Harvey takes four for 28 for the Wackers. He's a bit of a story of what might have been. In fact, I might return to him in a little bit. Blocker Wilson was also playing for WA. I'd kind of forgotten his WA trip at the end of his career when he finished with South Australia and went across the Nullarbor. But this was his last big performance, taking two for 39 in the one-day final. Also two for 17 for Marcus North. So he was really establishing himself as a a serious gun at this time, but um, bowling Mm -hmm. some useful overs, as he did for Australia when he had that career later in the in the noughties, if you like. Bucky was opening uh, for WA in one-day cricket at this point. He made 20 from 34, which feels about right. That's Bucky strike rate energy there. Scott Muellerman made 71 from 85 up the top with him. So they were on track early on. 
North made 32, but then a clatter of wickets. Mike Hussey, who's the captain of this side, I'm not sure if he was captain of the Scorchers team you were referring to before, whether that no, was... No, uh, Kadic was captaining that one. Kadic, yeah. Certainly Hussey was a senior player, then he was in this side as well. He was out for six to Ritzy, who we were talking about a moment ago, Nathan Horitz, who picked up a couple. An important 21 from 26 for Ryan Campbell. This is the summer after he's playing in the Australian team, but still very much a gun and been on this... Um, been on this show recently. We talked to you last year at the at the T20 World Cup. But when he falls, it's 173 for six with 10 overs to go. And it's, you know, you're just about saying with the target of 244, it's Queensland to lose, you know, chasing 72 in the final 10, four wickets in hand, but at the Gabba, home ground advantage and, and so on. And now we welcome back Kate Harvey, batting with a bloke called Darren Waite. So I don't remember an awful lot about other than seeing his name on scorecards. They get it down to eight needed from the final over. It's a brilliant partnership, batting against you know, Andy Bickle, Ashley Nofke, James Hopes, albeit Hopes off the ground at one point with injury and can't bowl the final over as a consequence. Nathan Horitz, who I mentioned before, that's a pretty good state attack in 03-04. But because Hopes is off the field, Clinton Perrin has to bowl the final over, which isn't ideal. Mm-hmm. He's only bowled one over to that point. I think he bowled, uh, from memory, he bowled right arm medium pace. Kate Harvey's 52 not out by this point. What a great time for his second list day 50 in a final like this at the Gabba. He takes a single from the first ball of the 50th over. So seven needed from five balls. Over to Darren Waits, who's a swing bowler, a lawyer. Batted a little bit, made a couple of professional 50s. And a reminder at this point on TV commentary, and I love this, Tony Gregg commentating on the domestic one-day final. You know, like, they used to always wheel out the big guns, Channel 9, even if it were, you know, a regular run-of-the-mill domestic game. It was still Benno and and Laurie and and Gregg and and Ciappelli and and all the rest of it. But Tony Gregg wants to remind us that a tie means Queensland win because they're on top. And Waits launches Perrin over mid-wicket, 20 rows back for six. The scores are level, huge response. Blocker Wilson going bananas in the viewing room with Mike Hussey. It's a great Rob Alinda clip. I went back to watch it predictably before recording mm-hmm. this answer. So one from four becomes one from three when there's a dot ball, but he, but he clips the next one for four and, and that's it. They get there with, with two balls to spare. Kate Harvey, 53 not out from 42 deliveries with two sixes earlier in that chase. Um, that's his highest list day score. And the hero at the very end, Darren Waits with 29 not out, his finest moment as a Western Australian player. It was the the, the Scorchers. I said Warriors before. Is it the Scorchers? No, it's the Warriors. The Scorchers are the B- BL Scorchers team. are the T20 team. Right. I, yeah. I've, I've confused myself there. Perth, um, not WA. Yeah, quite right, yes. Um, this was their first trophy, the Warriors, in, in one-day cricket since 99-2000. They're 11th all up, though, going all the way back to the Australasia knockout, which I think we've talked about before on Storytime yes. uh, in 1969-70. It took a decade, though, before they'd um, win their next uh, when it was called the Matador Barbecue Cup uh, and they've won four of the last nine since then all in front of 13,092 people Kate Harvey the obvious player of the match he kind of owes a lot to that tournament he was the the mm. best new talent in the cricket awards the, the what were called then the the ACB cricket awards in 1997 uh, the 96-97 summer that's back again in the mercantile mutual days when Kate Harvey was on the way up it was a bit of a mixed blessing because he got my recollection anyway, he was dubbed one of those early white ball specialists, which is fine now because there's 
heaps of choice. There's T20 cricket, there's franchise mm-hmm. cricket. He probably would have been a, a franchise player had he been 15, 20 years younger. But then it just kind of meant you you didn't get to play the Shield. So he played a bit mm-hmm. in the Shield, but not as much as otherwise might have been the case. When he retired one year after this, he, he was um, one of only two men to have taken 100 wickets in the history of Australian one-day domestic cricket, 115 at 26 to be precise, at an economy rate of 4.8. So you look at those numbers, he was a little bit unlucky never to represent Australia in, in 50-over cricket. Also took 60 first-class scalps at 35 and made a first-class ton. And that tournament's, uh, yes, yeah, starting, um, well, it's already started, hasn't it? The 50-over comp, we, we mm-hmm. mentioned that on the on the weekly show during the week. I do wish they'd go back to the 2013-14 format, Jeff. It's a decade ago now, but remember, like, it was towards the end of Channel 9's reign and they ran the entire competition in the space of two or three weeks. They played games every single day. They ran them in the day and popped them on like their secondary TV channel, Gem or Nine Plus or whatever these stations get called. And it meant that you kind of, over the course of two weeks, got a pretty good feel for what was happening. I remember David Warner made a double century in one of those games in 13-14 just to guarantee that he'd be um, playing for Australia a couple of weeks later. So I think they kind of got it right there, you know, 10 years on. But these days it does lack a little bit of context sitting on pay television and most of it being played midweek in games that feel fairly inaccessible. But there is a way through here and it's, you know, I, I don't know if it's YouTube or, or some other platform, but there is there is still an interest in 50 over cricket. We know that. They went back and forth on it though because players weren't happy with playing it all in one chunk and then not having any games to, you know, if you needed to say play for Australia in January or press a case to play for Australia in January, that sort of thing, there was there was no means to do it. You know, I suppose all that space has been gobbled up with, with Big Bash now, but, you know, Partly players wanted that spread of having some first-class cricket and some 50-over cricket through through the season rather than having it all um, just run and done in a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I, I, I take that point as well. But, yeah, as a kind of an hors d'oeuvre of sorts to the season proper, mm. and I'm not to say that 50-over cricket isn't the season proper, but this time of year, you know, end of September – into the start of October, you know, before we start playing Shield. Yeah, I, I quite like the yep. idea of like splicing three weeks of wall-to-wall 50-over cricket. The game's not clashing. It would be, it, you know, it would it would have worked if Channel 10 won the rights, had they um, won mm. all of the games, that, you know, because that was the model, wasn't it? Channel 10 were going to have everything. But, yeah, it's not quite so straightforward with pay television. Anyway, that's the second WA number uh, uh, a surge of WA activity off the top for Stu G and Finnick Dempsey. Mm-hmm. Next up, Jeff, is for you. Ian Wollstonehome, 260. Now, that comes with a clue. Loved Barat's story for my number, criminals everywhere. For some reason, you missed the clue. Like <laughs> I, I don't remember what Barat said. This must have been one I wasn't doing, Jeff. Yeah, there was one 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 that he and I did. There were There were quite a few cricketers who ended up involved in nefarious activities in that answer. Okay, okay. It it sounds like we've missed a clue along the way here. Mm -hmm. Professional sub, Ian continues, not actually a sub, but this name suggests he could be. He played for Great Britain at the 1906 Olympics, and he puts in brackets, yes, 1906. A French cricketer recently mentioned on Storytime also played in this tournament. Now, recently mentioned on Storytime won't be one of the French answers you've given in the last month or two. This no. will go back, you know, six or nine or 12 months because Ian's, it's not his first rodeo. He's a, he's a re-up on 260. But we did give a couple well, of answers is- around the, the, the French team that were silver medalists at the Olympic Games in quick succession yep. when we were in Sri Lanka last year from memory. Yeah, but I think this is more recent than that. I think we came back to that French at uh, France, Great Britain Olympic final maybe three months ago for some reason. So um, there, there is a reference there. There's a, there's a more recent reference there. It won't be about Maurice Kellerman, but 
1906 Olympics, first of all, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> because did you know anything about this, that there was a non-Olympics Olympics in between the, what's the plural, Olympuses? Uh, Olympiad? Between, between, so, so between you start Olympiad. with... Yeah, uh, look, uh, the, the short answer is no, I did not. I'm still slightly confused. I'm hoping you can, you can tell me more. I mean, I originally okay. thought, is this some, is this some like pre, I know the Winter Olympics didn't start till much later. Is this a precursor to the Winter Olympics that's like a, a version of indoor cricket got incorporated within, improbable right. as that is? Uh, that would have been amazing. Ice cricket, Saint Moritz <laughs> ice cricket um, in Switzerland, which they do play. No, so first Olympic Games in 1896 in Athens, go back to your roots. Mm-hmm. Uh, second Games, 1904 Paris, um, third one, uh, sorry, 1900 Paris, 1904 yeah. in, in St. Louis in the USA, right? Like we, we, we know that's the sequence. Uh, but what we don't know about is this intercalated games. Intercalated means imposing something in between some other things in a series. So basically the story is this. Um, the, the Paris games are a shambles. The St. Louis games are a shambles oh, yeah. as well. You know, they, they don't go well. No one wants to or can travel to America. No one shows up. Basically, the Americans win everything. It's a lot worse than that as well, Jeff. I know you're, you're a dedicated listener to the Dollop podcast. I'm not mm-hmm. quite so much these days, but I used to listen to it. And they did a special on the St. Louis 1904 Olympics and it was like a fucking shambles. It was spread out over nine mm-hmm. months, linked to the World Fair, I'm pretty sure. There was some fairly yep. barbaric activities that were included, which didn't, I don't think they played for medals for all of them, but the, the external stuff that was around the Olympic Games, mm-hmm. there was some not horribly racist activities. The marathon was a fucking mess as well. And um, I think there oh, was- the, the, marath- the marathon is the one where, I was thinking of this when you were mentioning the, the Edinburgh and the London marathons. The marathon's the one where um, w- one of the runners who's in the lead gets chased off the course by a pack of wild dogs, um, <laughs> literally, and has to add like three miles to his run in order to escape yeah. being eaten alive. The guy who wins it, they dose up with brandy because he collapses like 500 metres from the finish That's line right. and they basically carry him across the line. It's run in extreme heat. There's the, People just rock up and have a crack. There's a guy who shows up wearing like full length strides and, and like a button down shirt and says he's going to run and someone comes out of the crowd and cuts the legs off his trousers so that he'll be able to run in the heat. Um, there's a guy who, who stops by an orchard and eats some apples and then gets sick and spends the rest of the race throwing up and passes out in the field for like two hours and then wakes up and finishes the race and still comes in third or something. Like it is insane. I think it there's is a, like and anybody like, have a swing. And last week we spoke about Colin Milburn and the milk float. Um, picking him up and taking yep. him to the end of a five-mile run. I'm pretty sure a version of that happened here too where someone yes. at the back of the pack hitched a ride. I'm not sure what sort of vehicle it would have been in, in 1904, yep. but got taken to the like the peloton effectively and, and nearly yep. finished with a medal. Well, I, I think it's taken right to the front and runs gets dropped off near the stadium and runs in first and gets greeted as the winner until you know they figure out that he couldn't have possibly got there in that time. So anyway, all, all of that happens in, in 1904. Um, and even before that, after Paris is a debacle, the Greeks have said... Why don't we, because because we did Athens and it worked, why don't we do like an in-between Olympics, you know, like a, a, a sort of nice compact mini Olympics in the in the odd couple of years, you know. So we'll do 1904 as as the actual Olympics and then we'll, we'll do a, a sort of secondary one and that's where they come up with this term intercalated, the intercalated games as an interstitial 
Olympics, right? So the, the next one's not due until 1908. So they set it up in 1906 in Athens and they do it like the original. They do, they do it like the way the Olympics would work now, all in two or three weeks. It sounds like the IPL owners have had the same idea. <laughs> run an IPL in yeah, April, run another one in cricket. October. Um, <laughs> <laughs> why not both? <laughs> Run test cricket in two or three weeks in Athens. <laughs> Why not? Um, <laughs> so, so, so they're the ones who have the idea to squash it all down because the previous two, have, like you said, have been held over the course of months. No one knows which events count, all the rest of it. And the Olympic folk, the, the French, are hostile to this initially and then it's a raging success and they come around to it because it works really, really well. So 1906 is credited with keeping momentum going before 1908, which may otherwise have fallen over for London. You know, they might have Daniel Andrews it and just, just cancelled the whole thing because the previous couple had been such a shit show, but 1906 shows that it can work. So it has an important place in the Olympic movement, but then World War I intervenes. They keep counting in four-year intervals. They initially expect that the intercalated games will be repeated, but it doesn't ever happen again. And so in 1948, there's a petition that gets taken to, to the IOC to say that we should recognise these as legitimate Olympic Games and give them like a, 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 a 3B, you know, like you've subdivided your house kind of category as like the third and a half Olympics or whatever. And there's an IOC committee of three posh blokes who reject the petition saying it would be potentially embarrassing for the IOC to, to sort of have to recount Olympics. So... It's never recognised, um, even though they're probably the best standard of competition to date. And they were treated as such at the time. So people who were involved thought that it was a real Olympics and, and acted in a way that would reflect that. Anyway, so the, when people say that, the cric- that cricket was only played in the Olympics once in 1900, that may not be true. But, Ian, the only problem is I can find zero evidence of there being any cricket played in 1906. Now, it may have happened. You may have an obscure scorecard from somewhere. But none of the reporting on the 1906 Olympics lists cricket as one of the sports. None of the medal tallies reflect it. So maybe it was played sort of unofficially around it. There was like an unofficial football competition where a bunch of Greek cities played instead of countries and, and that, that wasn't sanctioned either. There was just some random stuff going on there. Um, and one of the teams walked off the final at halftime after being 9-0 down and decided not to come back <laughs> and refused to play for the silver medal. So maybe it was something like that. But you, you can fill in the, the last couple of blanks there, Ian, but that's as close as I can get to your 260. Yeah, I'm thinking exhibition event. I'm thinking when they um, they played Aussie rules at the 56 Olympics as the, you know, it'll be something along those lines. Yeah. But, you know, Ian, give Jeff the information that he needs and he'll yeah. be able to tell that in greater depth in a confirmation. I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell you one other thing, Ian, is that I've looked at every French cricketer from 1900 and can't find any record of any of them playing other matches either. So... <laughs> If, there's, if, if you have information, it is information that we would never have found. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. Next up is one for me from Rory Seymour. Here's your clue. My pledge related to the highlight of a particular period in a player's career. I pledged when England had won nine from ten under Stokes and he had surpassed many people's expectations, including mine. When appointed, there were comparisons to previous all-rounders records as England captain. I always thought one of them was unfairly maligned um, and a series forgotten, one that also contains an instance of a feat you recently discussed that Usman Khawaja had achieved. Yeah, okay. So um, I originally thought uh, I I went down the wrong path entirely. I I convinced myself that Rory must have been talking about Freddie Brown, who was a genuine all-rounder and got the gig at a pretty tough time. You know, they, they draw... Uh, nil all with New Zealand. They lose 1-0 to the West Indies in 1950. They lose 4-1 to Australia in 1950-51. But then they come back and beat South Africa 3-1 later in 1951, which is a pretty important series, sort of stabilising things before Peter May and and that golden generation that win the Ashes in in 53 and, and so on. But Rory then cut me off at the pass and said, You've gone too far. Hold up, hold up, hold up. But it's another Freddie. It's Freddie Flintoff uh, that Rory's referring to there. And, you know, maligned for what happened in Australia in, in 2006 07 when they were whitewashed, which finished him off in the gig. But going back before it, Rory makes a fair point. So they're away in India and home in Sri Lanka in 2005 and into 2006. Both are one all in three match series. But let's drill down into India and that one all result. Measured by today's standards, that's a pretty bloody good outcome for any touring side. It's the winter after the 2005 Ashes, and not a lot's really riding their way in terms of who they've got available. Michael Vaughan's out injured, which is why um, Flintoff is brought into captain. Also, the other substitute captain, um, which was Marcus Triscothic, he returned home early for personal reasons, who had deputised for Vaughan in Pakistan earlier in the winter. No Simon Jones, as we know, he'd never play again. No Ashley Giles, which is quite important when you consider he was their number one spinner at that point. He had to have an operation and missed the Indian trip. So, you know, Freddie takes on the gig, an understaffed England team, a young England side, misses the birth of his son in order to be there. Now, that's another thing that in only one generation, you wouldn't say that now. If a player was, um, if their partner was having a child, they would miss the test match almost certainly for sort of welfare reasons. But back then, we're kind of at the tail end of when players would, 
effectively choose their job above all else. So he's got mm. Alistair Cook and Monty Panesar with him for their first tours. So the team's already kind of in transition uh, to that group that would take them through the next 10 years or so. It begins in the March 2006 in Nagpur, a place we now know well, Jeff, uh, from our travels there in March of, well, this year, 2023. And they, they do well. These This is the era when the pitches are flat in India, and that's reflected in all of their scorecards. So they make... England, this is 393 and 297 for three declared. Paul Collingwood made a century in the first innings and famously Alistair Cook, 104 not out in the second innings to, to um, rack up a 100 on his test debut. India don't go for their target. England are only four wickets away, actually, from going 1-0 up. So it's a well-fought draw and a good result for them. The second test for England doesn't go quite so well in Mahali. They're beaten soundly by nine wickets. But it's not a debacle either. Like Fred himself, Freddie Flintoff this year, gets 70 and then takes four for 96. So he's leading from the front. Mm. But they have lost. So it's 1-0 down, uh, going to the third match of the series, the third and final match at the Wonka Day, work, rest and play. No Alistair Cook either. He's down on the morning of the game. That's, I think, the only test that Cook... Misses. I've got. I feel like like in his run of Test matches, he missed one, and maybe that was it. Or did he play crook? Either way, he wasn't well. England still get four hundred though. Strauss one hundred and twenty eight of those. India two seventy nine in reply. So a healthy first innings lead. Young Jimmy Anderson takes four for forty, including Sachin and Dravid. Amazing to think that Jimmy, who was there in you know March two thousand and six, will almost certainly be there in January and February two thousand and twenty four. He was offered a central contract during the week, so you know James Anderson still going strong for another twelve months. As, well, he's he's available, so anyway, he's he's not retiring and he's got a contract. England only get one hundred and ninety one in the second innings, but. Still means in India are set 313. Flintoff top scores with 50 the second time around as captain as well. But then India are rolled for 100. Sean Udall, Shaggy, who is unwell these days with, with Parkinson's, and we, we've spoken about that on the show before. This is his finest moment and his final test match as well, which we've also discussed. He rips through India, taking four for 14 in 9.2 overs, and they're all out inside 49. Jimmy Anderson helped out getting Dhoni for a duck. England win by 212 runs to square that series one all. At the time, Flintoff and England management said it was as significant as, as the Ashes win, given all the adversity uh, they faced there. Uh, and it was under the, the watch of you know, a relatively inexperienced captain in Andrew Flintoff. His overall record is 11 tests in charge, two wins, seven losses and two draws. But yes, those best days came in India. And the other part of the clue here that related to someone, uh, what did it say again? Usman Khawaja had achieved recently, Rory said. It's an unusual one, really. It's the batting on all five days of a test match. And it was the captain himself in Mahali, which was the loss. So Flintoff faces 180 balls for 70 in the first innings, coming in late on day one. He's four not out. It rains for most of day two. He's 26 not out by stumps on day two going into day three. So he's batted on days one, two, and three the first time around. On day four, he's in just before stumps on 16 not out uh, in an innings that that reaches 50 and resumes on, on the fifth day. So one of only three times in test cricket, someone's batted on all five days without getting a century. So three of the 13. Um, the others, it was the first ever actually, 
uh, back uh, for India against Australia at Eden Gardens in 1960, which was uh, Mon Guthali, Jay Ashima, who made 20 not out in 74, and Chiteshwa Pajara, recent final word guest, who made 52 and 22 against Sri Lanka, also at Eden Gardens in 2017. So those three are the only three who've batted on all five days of a test match and not made a century. And that puts a nice full stop the, on the answer, yeah. which the number was, uh, I can't remember. It doesn't matter, but the answer's right. Rory Seymour. <laughs> the, the, uh, what was the number? Maybe we've lost the number. We've lost in the there. number. <laughs> anyway, we've, <laughs> this, is, this is incredibly good note taking. I haven't lost the number for Daryl Richardson, which is $5.21. Uh, and may I say, Deirdre, Deirdre Chambers, what a coincidence. Okay, 1977 is a bit too early for my number, Daryl says to you. Uh, you were on the right track with Cronier, who hit a couple of milestones in the game. The match in question was the debut of an England great, and there was a true battle between two legends. I'm pretty sure I know what this is. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, yep, well, initially it was about, it, it involved an infamous player, and it involved a 521, and the first game for an England legend and come on I had boycott on his comeback after quitting the team for three years Ian Botham <laughs> taking five for 21 um, it was all there but yeah, it wasn't yeah. the right answer so Hansi Cronio I did suggest that maybe Hansi was involved when it when infamy came up but um, it turns out that he was Trent Bridge 1998 I think that's where we're going the fourth test South Africa England England trailing one nil coming into it they of course win this game and win the next one win the series 2-1 take the Leeds test in a thriller, very, very famous series result. But there were milestones, allegedly, for this infamous player. And it was Boycott's 100th 100, so that also fitted. But it was slightly, slightly a less significant milestone. But then, nonetheless, Cronio's 50th test, and he made his 3,000th test run in that match. Only Bruce Mitchell had done it, um, a player who's come up on the show quite a few times. So Bruce Mitchell was the only South African to have made 3,000 runs at that stage. Many have since then. But maybe not many will anymore. But there we go. That's a, a, a topic for another time. Cronio makes his ninth and final 100. Um, his average is 39.24 at that point. That's the highest it'll be for the rest of his career. His career strike rate goes above 45 for the only time in his career during that test match. There you go. There's a milestone that you didn't know uh, that probably nobody brought up at the time. It's his 35th test as captain. He ends up captaining 53 times South Africa, which is still the second most behind Graham Smith, I think. So there are some achievements uh, for Cronio when things were going better than they ended up. So he makes 126 in the first dig, Callis 47, Pollock 50, that's Sean Pollock, and Elworthy 48. So they make 374, good score against Goff, Cork, Fraser and Andrew Flintoff, who is on debut in this test match. In the reply, Alan Donald takes five, but he doesn't tear through them. Um, the top six all make scores between about 20 and 70. The tail falls away, so they make 336. They're in the game, trailing the 374 that South Africa made. Cronier top scores again in the third innings, make 67. South Africa make 208. Angus Fraser, well, someone who you enjoy the work of, five for 62 after his five for 60 in the first innings, 10-wicket match. England gets set 247, and, and this, is, this is the innings that we spoke to Michael Atherton about when we interviewed him a couple of years ago. Oh, Jeff, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to jump in here. We have... <laughs> This is, this is something that requires intervention. We have, um, James Houghton's brought this to my, I shouldn't be checking my Twitter mentions when you're talking, but I had a bunch of notifications flash up and here's why. Essex are following on right now. They're 100 for nine and tall Paul Walter 
made 73 of them, which means provided Essex lose their next wicket in the next, what, three runs? We've got the Bannerman. We're going to have a Bannerman in the final uh, week of the championship. We've got the Bannerman table somewhere. Uh, hang on. Is, is he out? He's out. Walter? He's out on He's 73 out. out of 100. And bearing in mind, it's 100 for nine right now. He made 73 from 53 rocks with uh, following on with Essex. I mean, all but now gone in the championship. But we could track in real time here at Bannerman while we're okay. recording, which I think is noteworthy. Okay. So um, I, short of turning I on the commentary. I'm favour of doing that. Short, short of a, yeah, short of turning on the commentary and live streaming. Thank you to James for giving me those real-time updates. 101 for nine. How many runs have we got to play with, Jeff? You're good at this. Six or seven, I reckon. Six or seven. Um, 67.35. They're so he unusual. 73. He's, uh, he's made, just to go back to it, so... He made yeah, seventy three. We've got six right. Yeah, out of one hundred and one. Now Are we still we obviously still ahead of the curve here. We've got eight runs to play with. If they get to one hundred and nine, then so yeah. If it if it's one hundred and eight or less, it'll be six point six seven five. Which <laughs> and will be guess who's batting for, and guess who's batting for Essex? <laughs> who who's got the highest percentage of sixes to fours in Test cricket history? We've been commentating on his career a fair bit recently. Tim Salvey, <laughs> you miss yet. <Yadav. laughs> so like, you miss Tim could, Salvey You miss Yadav could ruin this straight away, knowing the way he plays. With two balls. Somehow he's four from eight. He hasn't had, hasn't had a crack yet, but we know he will. Batting with Jamie How Porter. We- how did I not know that Umesh is bowling in the Champo? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's not he's not been um, uh, uh, much good to Essex here. They've only had a chance to bowl once. Umesh took one for 98 from 18. So, yeah, Northants are about to – well, I think they might have already determined the title because Essex were all out to 11. So I don't think Surrey can now lose even if they were uh, – uh, even if they were turned over in their game, which appears unlikely, but maybe Jeff, you continue, and I'm just going to keep okay. an eye. Would you would you forgive me if I opened up a YouTube browser and watched the stream on mute at the same time? Is that okay with you? I think that I think that I support that okay. endeavour. You, you, you um, crack and I think on. That those listening to this show will will support that <laughs> endeavour as well. So the nuts and bolts. England get set two forty seven. Atherton gloves Alan Donald. It's not given. He doesn't walk. Alan Donald goes absolutely nuts, like just just popping veins out of the field and just basically says, I'm going to destroy you and peppers them, bounces the living shit out of them for the next however long he can keep running in and bowling as fast as he can and as short as he can. It, it goes on for several overs. Um, Atherton's copying most of it, getting hit a lot. NASA's saying eventually edges one and gets dropped by Mark Boucher and, and that sort of lets the air out of the, uh, the, the, the inflatable a little bit and, and uh, Donald loses some of his steam. So eventually Alan Donald does get Hussein out, but at that point Alex Stewart comes in and just counterattacks ridiculously. 45 off 34 balls. Oh, in drop catch. Oh, you're fucking kidding me. Drop catch at backward square leg. You just tried to pop him on the moon. <laughs> that would have been it. That would have been it. I'm watching it a second time here. Northants have got a tracking camera here. Deep backward square. Oh, fuck off. Who was that? <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. It's still a chance. One, 104 for nine, but that was it. That was Umesh. Oh. Still a very good chance. If if Umesh is there, it's still an excellent yeah, chance. Yeah. Please, um, please continue. I am paying attention. I'm just doing two things at once. Atherton finishes up 
not caring about the milestone. Once he sees how well Stewart's hitting them, he's like, let's just get the win um, and not tempt fate in any way. So he finishes up 98, not out. Stewart, 45 of 34. You wouldn't see that in a test match most of the time these days unless Rishabh Punt was batting, but it happened then. And uh, there's not much impact in the match for Flintoff on debut, who takes one wicket in the first innings, makes 17 runs, none for in the third, doesn't bat in the fourth. But that one wicket is Jacques Callis. It is a pretty useful one to contribute, and he concedes 52 runs in his bowling spell while doing so. Our number is 5-2-1. That is the 52 and 1 that Andrew Flintoff took on debut. Beautiful. Uh, I'm going to now focus on my task of reading out the next answer. And if it happens, it happens. I just won't be watching it. Uh, David WFG, 11-0-0 AUD. I spoke about Dean Jones's 11th innings of the 1984-85 summer and found some elegant way of explaining why it must have been the first Red Bull game that, that David had seen as a child, which was the clue. I think it started on the 11th of January as well. There are a whole bunch of reasons why this worked. Wasn't right. David effectively gave me the answer with a signature bat. So there was a a bat that, that got signed from this game in question between England against Victoria at Ballarat in the summer of um, 1991. And it is Dino. And it is Dino. We're going to get to Dino in a minute. Mm-hmm. But I just thought that so, yeah, we know from, as I sleuthed David's email address last time, he must have been 12 when this game was played. And it does take a similar path to the um, the Dino 100 against Queensland from 85 where he makes a tiny one innings and a duck in the other, I'm pretty sure, and and so it is here. But, yeah, just like a tour game in Ballarat, you know, a state game in the regions. You know, we made a lot of Graham Vipani making 100 against the Windies in 96-97 at Wangaratta. But this is also a classic of the 90s genre. You know what I mean? Like, I know that, you know, the, the MCG was being rebuilt at this time and there was more of an incentive not to play there. But this is good stuff. December 1990. But of interest to me, there was only one Ashes test played to this point. You know, Australia had won by 10 wickets at Brisbane with Alderman taking a six for in the second innings. He was man of the match. But there were so many tour games. I went and tracked them all. Because why not? Essex have Essex have got past it. Essex have gone Jamie past. Jamie Porter's it. Jamie Porter's just whacked a four. Oh, um, can you find out who wears number twelve for Northants? I should know because I did them last week. Had we been speaking a week ago, I could have told you who wears number twelve. But search Northants cricket wiki and you'll find who wears number twelve for them. It's he who is responsible for the drop at Backward Square, who's fucking denied us. Anyway. While you're doing that, I'll, I'll tell our listeners about the tour games that were played sure. before December the 20th. They played a West Australian Cricket Association President's 11 at Lilac Hill on the 25th of October. So they were over there pretty early. On the 30th of October, a combined WA 11, another 50-over game, both ahead of a first-class game on the 2nd of November, which was drawn at the Wacker. They played South Australia on the 9th of November, where the Sackers won by six wickets, including a, a ton to Paul Nobes, who I loved back then. He's a bit ropey on social media these days. Tasmania were next in a one-day game that England won on the 14th of November. Then the traditional Australian 11 game, before it was called Australia A, when it was called the Australian 11, the second 11 in in practice, between the 16th and 19th of November, which was a draw at Hobart, but a pretty interesting draw. Alan Lamb makes twin tons. Um, Chris Matthews takes a six-fer. Devin Malcolm takes a seven-fer. And David Boone, who's captaining the Australian 11, and I don't remember it this way, but that suggests that he was kind of on the cusp of not necessarily being in the test team. Anyway, he was leading this side and made 108 on the final day to to confirm that he would be in that first test side that was played, um, or that first test that was played in in later November. Then, you know, after the first test match, it was on to the Tri-Series. England played six one-day internationals before the second test, four against New Zealand and two against Australia, and then we arrive at Ballarat. 
Tom Taylor. Tom Taylor. Put it down. Tom Taylor, who made the brisk 50 against Surrey last week, the counter-attacking 50. Oh, well, not to be. Uh, North He's Ants. ruined Christmas. He's ruined Christmas. He's ruined Christmas, Tom. Not Sorry. a bad effort from North Ants to knock over Essex the week after keeping Surrey very tight. You know, they're getting relegated and they've nearly knocked off the top two teams in the comp on the way down. Anyway, more on that the next time we talk about the championship on uh, the weekly show. So we're in Ballarat on the 20th of December. Uh, this is day one. Victoria make 441 for seven declared. Warren Ayres, 139. And Dean Jones, 110. Just to do Warren Ayres first, a funny one. 57 first-class matches across a decade, beginning in 87, but absolutely dominated grade cricket. I mean, you look in the, the, the back of the, the newspapers on a Sunday and Warren Ayres made 100 pretty much every week. He's, he, he made seven first-class centuries as well, so not for nothing. But yeah, I, I can see why David would remember watching Dino this day. Real peak of power stuff for him. You know, he would have been dominating in the one day, as I'm sure. Then he rattled off 110 from 106 balls with eight fours and five sixes, which is totally unheard of in Red Bull cricket at that time. So, yeah, he would have been straight out of the one-day side, straight into the tour game and, and taking one format to the next. Up against Glasden Small, Devon Malcolm, Martin Bicknell, who was um, on that trip. Didn't we, We've spoken before about the test matches that he played. Uh, in 2003, wasn't it, when he uh, finally got a, a couple of goes against South Africa, I think it was. Doesn't like me very much. Uh, Phil Tufnell and Michael Atherton were, were the bowlers in that group. Indeed, Dino is out to Ath, um, caught by Devon Malcolm, which is an unusual uh, sequence given that Devon Malcolm's blind, isn't he? And Mike Atherton, I know he bowled a little bit. Uh, I suppose uh, this was in the part of his career where he bowled quite a lot towards the end. He didn't start it out as a leg spinner. The, bad it's the only one. Yeah, that's right. The only one's ever done it. it. Yeah, it felt right that we were coming back to another Dino century three years um, uh, after his death. I had his obituary pop up in my feed this week, which I was writing along with Athers doing his for the Times when I was writing for The Guardian a couple of years ago at Lords at the end of the season. Anyway, that's three years ago. England made 353 for six declared the second time. Alan Lamb, another century. He really was flying the States. Athers, 73. Robin Smith, 71, not out. And in the wickets, it's very Victorian bowling lineup. Merv, two. Flem, one. Simon O'Donnell, one. And Dean Jones, one for seven from one over. And who did he get? The bloke who made the 100, Alan Lamb, caught by Paul Rifle. The, the Victorians, uh, the second time around, at, at 215 for seven declared. That suggests that suggests long on to me. Yeah, I, I think I, so. Got, I'm getting a long on vibe <laughs> to that. Uh, so the second time, Dino nicked off second ball to Devon Malcolm. Uh, so that'll be our number, a 110 in the first innings and zero in the second, one one. Zero, zero for David. England was set 304 in 71 overs, but they just saved the game instead. They made 204 for seven. Paul Jackson, who went on to play for Queensland and, and took the final wicket of their first Shield win, uh, took fourth for Victoria on that day. I would have loved to have been there that week. Now, reading through that card, there are some some of our real faves have all taken the field across four days in Ballarat before Christmas. Dean Jones took 27 first-class wickets, by the way, which is a little bit more than I thought. I, you know, I thought maybe like seven or something like that, but but 27 for him. One of those was in test cricket. So like Mark Taylor and Michael Slater, Dean Jones, one test victim, and not a bad one either. Richard Hadley, caught and bowled by Dino at Adelaide uh, in 1987. In first-class cricket, he also got Damien Martin, who was the man who would replace him in the test side um, in the summer of 92-93. He got Michael Bevan. He got Tom Moody. He got Javed Miandad in a county game. And, and the postscript to all of this is that these are the days that immediately precede 
uh, Mel Shawley's nerd pledge from a couple of years ago, the Melbourne Test match of 1990, where England are way ahead. They make 352, Gower and even Century. I remember he brings it up with a four out towards the construction site where the, the old Southern Stand had been taken down. Bruce Reed six for in the first dig. Then Australia make 306. Angus Fraser takes six for. But, you know, a healthy lead heading into the second half of the match of 46. And then England gets a 103 for one with Gooch and Larkins batting really nicely. So, in effect, I know people hate that term, but in effect, they're 149 for one. Then they collapse. They're all out for 150. They lose nine for 47. Bruce Reed seven for 51, so 13 for the match. Australia set 197 for victory, and they lose Taylor and Healy early on. They're 10 for two in disarray, but then David Boone, who we mentioned before, walks in with Jeff Marsh. They make 94 and 79, not out respectively. Do it easy and they eventually win that Ashes series 3-0, 1990-91. But a great series for the tour game, and it included Ballarat, where David was there uh, on the 20th of December, 1990, watching Dino make a ton. If there was a game you could be there for, it would be the game where Dino gets Javid Mandad out in a county game and Javid Mandad's wearing like a Pepsi hat or something <laughs> while he's batting. That, that, would be, that would be the perfect confluence of events. Yeah. Um, our next number is... Not that, Tim mentioned. Someone else who made a ton recently. Uh, $3.83 was the number. Okay, so not that says that. My 383 was not Sachin's 2003-04 series runs, which ended with a... Which was a pretty good answer. Yeah, I thought so as well, which ended with a cover driverless 241 at Sydney. It does, however, relate to something that happened at the SCG. And with that hint, I'll request a revisit, which is capitalised. All right, Jeff. Yeah, okay. So this, so eventually, eventually um, we were able to figure this out. And, and I think, and the revisit clue meant that if we looked back at not the most recent, but a much earlier, not that Tim mentioned, answer, there would be a direction inherent within that answer. This meant going all the way back to Storytime 51, which was a long time ago because we did Storytime 151 last week and now we're 152. But in that time, on that occasion in Storytime 51, not that, had an answer with a number that went 411 and a couple of other digits and it ended up being one of the laws of the game. Mm. 383, law mm. 38.3, what is it? Non-striker leaving his or her ground early. <laughs> a, a cause dear to the heart of the final word. Um, we've had Bannerman chat and now we're getting onto Mancad chat, uh, the, the two favourite chats of this particular show. Now, 38.3 these days has three subclauses and the first subclause has two subclauses of its own. So you can go 38.3.1.1, which is the bit about clarifying the phrase of expected to release the ball, the wording that got everybody very hot under the collar about basically assumption versus expectation. Like if you're not watching and you think that the bowler will have bowled the ball by that point, then you have expected them to release it, which is not what it actually meant. It meant at the point in the bowling action where the ball would normally be released. But, you know, people are sometimes not great at words and, and, and um, decide that their misinterpretation of something is the only interpretation that can be applied to it. 38.1.1 is the bit about the, the highest point in the usual swing of the arm over the top and 38.3.1.2 says even if the player's wandered out of their crease 
before the arm reached that highest point. If the arm goes past that highest point, you still can't be run out. So those are the, the clarifications. 38.3.2 says uh, the umpire will call dead ball if there is no dismissal and that the ball will not count as one of the over, which is which is fitting. So you know the one was it Shadab Khan batting against Afghanistan recently. The run out was from the first ball of the over. And so if you went to the highlights tab in the text commentary, the wicket didn't come up because there was no ball for it to be attached to. This came up in the final word game, would you believe, last week. So Richard Jantz-Moore, who took off early on that final delivery, checked with Graham Starkey, who was umpiring at that end, about whether a ball would be lost if he were mancad, bearing in mind it was the final ball of the game. So Richard takes off. So had he been mancad, it would have meant that I'm pretty sure I would have had to have gone out there. In fact, I would have, because I would have been... As the, the only retired batsman, yep. I would have had to have gone back out, just stood at the non-striker's yep. end and taken off as well. Now, had I been man-catted as well, we would have been all out, then, never facing the final the ball of the game. Sure. But Richard took a calculated risk that it didn't matter if you were man because I would come in next. Uh-huh. It was all done on the fly, very clever from him. Yeah. Um, Richard, who yeah. was featured on the show the last couple of weeks with brilliant Northants numbers, by the way. And we were just talking about Northants a moment ago who are on the cusp of beating Essex. We'll be very happy about that. Well, we also said in, in an episode we recorded before that game that was going to be published after the game, we said that we would assume that he had batted beautifully and would would speak as such. Now, he did make one very important he run. Did. Without that run, the tie wouldn't have happened but he also created the two that allowed the game to be tied in the end. So That's he did it. that beautifully. He did. Cleverly. He, he, he nearly overtook Fran. From the Fran. Well, Fran who hit the ball and was slightly, um, slightly uh, what's the word? He, he was just like still after he hit it. He didn't realise. Well, he, he ran, he took off. But he, uh, there was that moment when like everyone was, you've got to come back for two. <laughs> and he did come back for two. Yeah. But Rich was yep. um, yeah, nearly overtaking him, lapping him, if you will. But it all worked out yep. okay in the end. Okay, so it doesn't count as one of the overs. So if you've got, say, six wickets in hand, you might as well just have them all take off early and hope that in one of those deliveries the bowler won't take the back. Exactly. Yeah. You might as, might as well use all the resources at your disposal. So, uh, right, doesn't count as one of the over. How does it relate to the SCG? It's because in the second test of the Australia-India series of 1947, after India make 188, uh, that is when a particular thing happens. Well, they're 38 for two, I should point out, at the end of the first day because it rains all day because it's a test match in Sydney. They resume on day two. Wickets fall at the top of the order. Datu Padkar down the order, batting at eight, makes 51, up against Lindwall and Miller, um, no mean feat. Averages 52 in that series, by the way, Datu Padkar, who's you know an all-rounder who bowls more than, more than he bats but does really well in that series. So they make 188 and then they bowl out Australia for 107. I've talked about this match on the, on the show before, but it's interesting that... So Brown's the first wicket to fall. He's run out for 18. And there's no hue and cry about this in the match report at the time. It just says, Australia lost their first wicket in an unusual manner. In a previous match, Mancad the bowler warned Brown about backing up too far, and when the batsman repeated this, ran him out. This time, Mancad gave no warning, and the first occasion Brown moved down the pitch too quickly, the bowler whipped off the bales. So I would say if you've been warned, then been run out, then you've been warned twice, and then you get run out another time doing the same thing. Anyway, the point is this. Uh, Australia, that's the only wicket to fall on the second day. They're 28 for one at the end of the day. Then they have a rest day. Then it rains for two days. (laughs) I, I hope it rained on the rest day. I hope they didn't, like, take the clear day off 
after having not played for the previous two days. But, you know, given the way cricket works, they probably did. So the pitch is very wet. They've got nine wickets to get, but they get them pretty quickly. Lala Ramanath combines with Padka, with Mankad and, and Vijay Hazare, who takes four wickets and gets Bradman out for 13. So India have a lead of 81. They're in all sorts on this wet pitch. They're 61 for seven, Bill Johnston and Ian Johnson running amok second time around. But they're still 142 runs ahead with three wickets in hand and a day to play on a ruined pitch and then it rains for all of day five and washes the whole thing out. Test matches in Sydney. What is it? God, who'd want it? Who'd want it? No comment. No further comment anyway. Joel Emerson's with me. Uh, 2.15, Jeff. $2.15 in AUD. He says, Elise Perry has now done this, but Rachel Haynes never did, nor did Bradman. None of them have anything to do with 2.15. It's more that 2.15 was the last time until this year that this team played here even if it was in a different format. Here is another clue, a previous pledge related to the 2000 World Cup final. So I thought two things. I thought New Zealand played Australia in the 2000 World Cup final. So this must be relating to the the 50-over World Cup final, the most recent one played in New Zealand. And I was looking at all sorts of cities in New Zealand to find out where Australia had played, where they hadn't played for a long time and where Rachel Haynes might not have played. Obviously, she played in New Zealand, but um, whether there were towns she hadn't played in, that sort of thing. And also, I was thinking the pledge came in just before the Commonwealth Games in 2022 initially, because this is a revisit of an, of an older number. So then I was thinking, well, so Haynes wasn't in the Com Games squad because she'd retired by then and Perry was, even though she didn't play, she still has a gold medal, which Steve Ward doesn't have. But I couldn't put the pieces together. Yeah, all those things I thought as well are a version of them. You would think that there's something to do with the 2000 World Cup in New Zealand there, but uh, there's not. So uh, this took some time going back and forth with Joel. I thought test tons as well, like Haynes didn't get one. Um, but then the Bradman thing didn't work. The Bradman thing did work with Commonwealth Games. I thought that was might have been a piss take about Bradman never winning a, mm-hmm. a Commonwealth Games gold medal. But Haynes did, didn't she? Didn't Haynes play at Birmingham? But Perry sort of did. She was in the squad. That's right. I thought maybe it was to do with Edgbaston because Perry won a gold medal but didn't actually play. She was on the subs bench. So I thought there was some... There was something going on there, you know, like she was part of it, but not actually taking the field at Edgbaston, which meant she didn't play a game there. Um, and whether that had been anyway, I went round and round in circles on this. And then we got back to 2020. We got back to 2020. And this is Joel and me. And I thought, well, maybe it's something to do with Elise Perry not playing in the 2020 final. But I'm like, well, that has nothing to do with the 2000 World Cup final, right? Like it's a pretty big stretch to mm. try and link together the game at Melbourne in 2020 and the, the World Cup that was played 20 years earlier than that in a different format. But I thought the different format thing, anyway, anyway, wasn't any of those things. Yeah, I was all confused. <laughs> I was totally misremembering. Like I was misremembering Haynes having retired before the Commonwealth Games because I was thinking about who was opening, it's, that she wasn't opening, but of course she was yeah. in the order. Like this, 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 this confused us more than perhaps it could or should have. Yeah, right. When you read the clue back out there and I was able to... I think the Bradman thing was also the fly in the ointment because did Bradman play a test match at Edgbaston? I don't think he did. Uh, he wouldn't have because they always played it. Nothing, they played at Lords the Oval, Manchester, Birmingham. I don't think they were playing at Birmingham then. They were playing... Trent Bridge was the venue they used at the test matches yeah. that Bradman played in England. Anyway, anyway. And he didn't play in New Zealand either. No. Well, here's another place that Bradman didn't play. South Africa. And this is where we're going in this answer. So... Australia, unbeknownst to me, 
maybe because it was a pandemic and the birth of our first child and other things that would have been filling up my brain, was scheduled to visit South Africa in a bilateral series after the World Cup of 2020. Now, I didn't know yes. that. I did not know that. Evidently, you did. You're nodding okay. your head. Um, but I don't remember that anyway. It's fallen out of my brain that Australia was... And, th- and that's significant because they never go there. Looking through it... It was, it was significant that they immediately hit cancel on that series but didn't cancel the Australian men going to England not, not that long after that. It was, right. it was one of those sort right. of... I, I think, although, to be fair, I think the South Africa series was like... April 2020 when there was no oh yeah, yeah. there was no was, viability was, for any of that whereas England it was stuff the beginning was in September. of September yeah. yeah no one no one had a clue what was going on right you know? right so but yeah it, it's noteworthy because Australia simply don't visit South Africa in women's cricket so I've found in going through and researching this answer you know Perry does get to go there this year but when the pledge was sent through because of course Perry played in the T20 World Cup there was no guarantee that Perry was ever going to make it back to the you know, the T20 side. She was on the outer in that format of the game, but a big WBBL season and she was there in, in South Africa this year. But Haynes didn't get there, right, because she'd retired before the, the World Cup in South Africa this year. So, And Bradman never did. So that's when I finally kind of got there with Joel that Bradman never went to South Africa as a player. And it's a bit strange when you consider Elise Perry's had this long and illustrious career until this year. She'd never been there. But just before she burst onto the scene, Australia did play there in the 2005 Women's World Cup, the 50-over World Cup. And the 215 relates to the final of that tournament when Australia made 215 for four with Karen Rolton making an unbeaten 107, batting at number three. Belinda Clark as captain, legend, her final World Cup. Um, she would retire uh, later that year in England in 2005, but it was her last World Cup in the April of 05, just before that England campaign. Australia were flawless in the group stage. They won five and there were two washouts. England and India were, were the two washouts they had, though. So I suppose there were some questions coming into the elimination stage uh, for Australia, having not played the two sides they would then face in the semi and the final, respectively. It's noteworthy that all of the games in this World Cup like the rounds were played on the same day, so if if there was rain or rain about, which there was evidently, kind of you know it was it was a chance where all the games would go, and and that's why they lost a couple of rounds in the group stage. So Australia get England in the semis and beat them comfortably by five wickets. England one fifty eight. Claire Connor top scored the captain with thirty eight. Catherine Fitzpatrick also playing her final World Cup took three for 27 for the Aussies. Blinda Clark made 62 to chase it down the captain with three overs to spare. India knocked off New Zealand in the other semi. They were second and third in the group, so fair play there. India, 204 for six with Madali making 91 not out from 104, as it ever was. It feels like Madali Raj was always making 91 not out from 104 balls somewhere. India get through with ease. So to the final, Australia make that 215 for four. I'll also mention Mel Jones. That was her final. Big game for Australia, making 17. Lisa Stalaker, who was a younger player then, uh, made 55 at the end, batting down at number eight. Not eight, sorry, number six, I should say. It looks quite chaseable in today's money, 215. But you look at the scores in that World Cup, that was a big total. That was a big chase of 215 in the in the pre-professional era. There were only two centuries in that tournament. Karen Rolton's and, and Claire Taylor, who made a century in the group stage for England. Very different world now, where scoring rates have accelerated and, and, and there are more centuries, which... We've talked about and John Leather, um, Hypercourse has, has charted really nicely as well. Mathali, who was the captain and star for India already at that stage, was out leg before wicket for six to Dr. Shelley Nishki, who's the 
um, who's the coach of the Australian team these days. She'd finished with two for 14 from nine in a World Cup final with her left arm orthodox. Awesome figures there. Fitzpatrick, the, the, the firebrand quick, two for 23. India, all out, 117 in 46 overs, nowhere near it. Australia victorious by 98 runs, their fifth title after um, holding up the World Cup in 78, 82, 88, 97. They'd win two more after that. 2013, which Lisa played in too, Lisa Stalaker and Alex Blackwell was in that team as well. And, and 2022, Haynes was also there in 2013. So some crossover there between 2013 and 2022 via Rachel Haynes, who was in the clue for Joel, albeit not there in 2023 in South Africa. And they don't play there in this cycle either, in the Women's uh, 50 Over World Championship or 50 Over ICC Championship, it's called, isn't it? Um, They play South Africa at home in February. So I hope that's something they can fix up next time around. Uh, so that nicely tracked by Joel that they've just not been playing there and yeah, they can make amends in, in the next cycle, which will begin in 2025, I suppose. Yeah, strange that there has been so little and um, I wonder what the underlying reason is for that. It can't always be accidental if it keeps um, panning out that way. This is Jeremy Coney and I'm on the final word. I've got one more number. It is from Aravind and it is $4.50. Yes, Aravind says, thanks for your story. I enjoyed learning about Alan Watkins and his series. We'll make it easy for you. 45 runs, one day bilateral. The cult stuff. It might have lasted just a few months. The series was one of my earliest cricketing memories and I read the Chronicle when I was at university. Yeah, so this is because the the original clue says something about this player becoming something of a cult figure or or this this particular, something related to this having cult status. Now, I had a look at every single instance of a score of 45 being made by an Indian player in men's ODIs. Only 23 players have done it, many of them multiple times. Tendulkar and Dhoni topped the list with five times each. Let's consider the phrase cult status, yep. Adam. If I say cult status, does Sachin Tendulkar or MS Dhoni, do they fit that description? No. No, they do not. No, no. they do they not. They are not cult um, heroes. So- they, are, um, they are many things, but they are not cult heroes. <laughs> yes, they are not cult heroes. Um, <laughs> it is a word that gets overused by people who just mean something is popular. It's, it's, it's not a cult hit if it's a hit. Uh, right, so, so I tried to order the players in reverse cult order because there are... There are very few that, that could qualify in this list. So let's say Virat Kohli next, maybe Kapil Dev captained their first World Cup win, Surav Ganguly ran the BCCI, Ravi Shastri, the most prominent commentator in the world, VVS Laxman may have played the most famous Indian test innings. They're, they're probably your least cult group. Then you get down to Yuvraj Singh, Varenda Sewag, Suresh Raina, Hardik Pandya, Ajinkya Rahane, <laughs> Shubman Gill, the current star. Maybe we, we tear down to Muhammad Azharuddin, maybe then like a Shikhar Dawan, a couple of Jadejas in RJ and Ravindra. Yeah. Not seeing any cult heroes there. Maybe for someone of our generation, you might not know a lot about Dilip Vingsaka, but he played over 100 test <laughs> yeah, matches. No. <laughs> he's, he's, in, he's in the Zahir Abbas mould of like underrated players in terms of how celebrated they are now, but you absolutely can't say cult there. Vijay Shankar, Navdeep Saini, the pace bowler, they're both too recent with the 45s they've made. So that leaves me with three, and even these ones, I struggle to qualify them. Robin Singh, I mean... Only played one test, but played over 100 ODIs. Yeah, I can see it. I, can, I reckon I'd call Robin Singh a cult hero. He had a lot of support. Yep. 
He, he, you know, he, again, yeah. we, we talked earlier about Kate Harvey being seen as a white ball specialist. Mm-hmm. That was Robin Singh around yeah. the same time. I can I could make a case for that. Yeah, in many ways, Kate Harvey was the Robin Singh of Western Australia. <laughs> we used to say that. Used to, Kate Harvey's had a really good run on this show, I will say as yeah. well. He, he has had a disproportionate amount of airtime to playing time, perhaps, uh, over the years. So Robin Singh made 45 three times. Two of them are in series where he doesn't do much. They're fairly uneventful. One is a one-off ODI in Zimbabwe in 1997. None of this speaks to me in terms of this answer. Navjot Singh Sidhu, like... Maybe I mean again he played fifty tests and a hundred ODIs. Like he's, it's hard. He's in the slammer at the moment. Isn't cult. It? <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm pretty sure City's been locked away for a time for something that was pretty horrible from the eighties. God, I'll get in trouble for okay. saying that. If I'm wrong, I'll edit it out. Well, th- that much I didn't look into. Um, maybe he actually started a cult. I'm not sure, but. You know, he, he was a a non-headline player, um, but but probably doesn't doesn't qualify there. He made a forty-five also in Zimbabwe. There's a real Zimbabwe theme here, and he made another against Pakistan in Toronto in the nineteen ninety-eight Friendship Cup, which is pretty cult playing India. And Pakistan playing in Toronto in 1998. But again, there's nothing special in those series. And so we come down to Dinesh Mongia. Remember Dinesh Mongia? Uh, Dinesh Mongia, uh, not specifically name, vaguely rings a bell, but I'm sort of thinking more of Naya, Naya Mongia, aren't I? Um, so no, that, that's not on my radar quite so much. More one for Barat probably. It sounds like we're talking about his era more than mine. Oh, yeah. Um, Barat would be able to tell us many, many things about Dinesh Mongia. Um, <laughs> we, we should probably just dial him in at this point, but then we need to finish the show. So, uh, look, he was... You know, he was a wicketkeeper in that early 2000s sort of era. You remember um, remember your story about MSK Prasad having to open the batting um, in yes, a, a shortage of players. Yeah, in, yeah, I remember it well. Nine two thousand tour. Uh, yeah, well, so it, it was it was a time when they liked to throw wicketkeepers up to open the batting. You've had Kalavatarana, you've had Gilchrist, and then they're like every wicketkeeper should open open the batting at some point. So Zimbabwe again. This time Zimbabwe visit India in two thousand and two, and. I've talked with Bharat about this period of of India trying everybody as an opener as well through a a few years, both in test cricket and one-day cricket. So Sewagan and Tendulkar are opening the batting in 50-over cricket in the previous series against England. Neither of them are playing this Zimbabwe series. So Ganguly opens the batting with Dinesh Mongia, who hasn't done the job before. Not like it's an instant drastic success, but it kind of works out. He makes 25, makes 45, makes a low score, then he makes a 30, and then he finishes the series with 159 not out in the fifth and and final test. So takes India to 333. That's only the fourth time they've made a score over 300 before, and he ends up leading the series with 263 runs at 65. They sort of play around with keeping him at number three when Sawag comes back, then he goes back up to open when Tendulkar drops to four and eventually settles back down as keepers tend to do at six or seven. But 57 ODIs, never played a test. Does that qualify him to be a cult hero? I, I, I reckon it's close enough. I don't, I don't know why Aravind would have picked out the 45 because nothing particularly drastic happens in that match, but maybe it was just a convenient number to bring us to a five-match ODI series against Zimbabwe in 2002. Is that plausible? Uh, it's as close as I could get, Aravind. This yeah. is the best I could do. Okay, okay. Just to back over one thing I said before. So Navjot Singh Sidhu did go to the slammer 
for 12 okay. months recently for one year of rigorous imprisonment. I'm not sure what rigorous imprisonment mm. means, but this goes back to something in, in 1988 where he was arrested for assaulting and causing the death of a 65-year-old man. It was a road rage homicide case and it was always, um, he, he was, if I recall correctly, found not guilty um, at the time and then it, it's been an ongoing sort of political football and the fact that he's a member of, or has been a member of the, the Punjab Legislative Assembly does make it literally political as well. A member of the uh, Indian National Congress Party, which isn't... The, which is the opposition. Which is the opposition. So he, he was, I'm just scrolling through his election results here, he was a member of the BJP uh, back in 2004 and 2007, 2009 when he was elected. But then he looks like he changed his party by 2017 when he joined Congress, uh, where he was re-elected with a healthy majority then and again in 2022 by the looks of things. Or maybe he lost in 2022. Either way, yeah, he's been in prison and that's probably a another story time story at some point but I remember Navjot Sidhu for the way he danced down the track at Shane Warne in, in 1998 and had that ability to get to the pitch and hit him over his head time and time again anyway digression uh, the cult hero status for Aravind remains inconclusive as well we've got one more number for you Adam it comes in from Helen Wilson oh, yeah. it is a 316 in British pounds she says thanks for the Andy Flower story from season 13 episode 19 I'm afraid my number wasn't so clever or interesting. I'm indeed an England supporter and my Uncle John was doing some research and was excited to tell me that this player played regularly for my church's choir team back in the day. His dad was a groundsman at a local college in this light blue city. I'm sure you'll find the number easily enough. Yeah, hi, Helen. Uh, great to correspond with you about this. So the light blue bit had me scratching around for a while. I, th- I sort of thought maybe a Man City fan and we were like, you know, talking about Manchester and she was making a point about Manchester being blue and not red or possibly Coventry. But no, zooming out, it had to be Cambridge, I realise now, and it is Cambridge. Once that was established, who better than the finest cricketer to ever be born in Cambridge, Jack Hobbs, probably mentioned as often as anyone on Storytime. But as it can be with the mega names we don't sort of drill down as much as we otherwise might because it's just too difficult. Like someone like Jack Hobbs, 199 first-class hundreds, 61,237 first-class runs. Well, it was 197 first-class tons when he retired, but had two added on later on, two in Sri Lanka, which um, uh, the, the, the Association of Historians and Statisticians amended retrospectively to make him fall. I wonder one. if you... If he would have retired, if he'd known he was on 199. Yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. Um, would he, especially would he have found himself a, a gig in a DB close 11 yeah. style team, some sort of, you know, TPS kind of end of season party hat and just notch one more. Especially the way that he played all the way through to the end as well, which is what this story is going to be about. It's an obscene record. So after the war, just to put, put some numbers around this, after the war, he's 37 when first class cricket resumes. He makes 85 first-class hundreds after that. So, you know, imagine how many he would have made had he not lost five seasons to, to World War One. Anyway, 15 test matches from 1908 to 1930, the final of those when he was 48 years old at the Oval against Australia, where Bradman made his 232, which clearly finished him for good, understandable. Who wants to be out there, you know, fielding for 700 runs when Bradman's coming into his own? 
Now, none of this is going to do justice to Hobbs, this answer. We should do a full show on him. But I am going to run through a few links for Helen specifically. Initially with Cambridge, that light blue reference. He actually played four years for Cambridgeshire in minor counties cricket before he went to Surrey. So just 11 matches, but they're between 1901 and 1905, between the ages of sort of roughly 19 to 23, 24. So, you know, when people say he's from Cambridge, that's more than just a birth certificate thing. He actually was of Cambridge, the eldest of 12 children. His dad, as alluded to in the clue, was the local groundsman, an umpire as well. And I assume, again, per the clue, this is where um, Helen's Uncle John learnt about the choir team that he played for too. So, yeah, he's not a prodigy, but he is very much of Cambridge and had a pretty normal record for them. You know, you would expect playing one level below that he would have dominated. Not quite. In 11 matches, two centuries, an average 45 playing minor count. He's playing minor counties rather, but that's enough for Surrey to pick him up and from there away he goes. Well, after he got knocked back, he went to Essex, I think, and asked them for a trial and they had a look at him and said, nah, you're no good. One of the great fuck-ups. Yeah, that's it. We we, we did the other way, didn't we, last week with Hopper Reid where he nearly made it with Surrey and ended up having that extraordinary but brief career with Essex. Well, this is, yeah, a story of the other way around. So Tom Haywood, who we've talked about before, recommended this Hobbs bloke to come over and the rest is kind of history. Playing test cricket from 1907-08 in Australia, he made 100 in his second game for Surrey in 1905 and you know, if we press fast forward to the period of time in question, the post-war period, this is when he's off his chops. In 1919, 2,594 runs and in the seasons after that, 28-27, then he missed a year in 1921 with illness. 1922, he made 25-52, then 2087, 2094, 3024 at 70 in 1925, then 2949 at 78 in 1926. Didn't want it enough, should have got 3,000. 1927, 1600, and 1928, back to 2,582. Now, we're going to drill down on on 1926 when he's 44 years of age. The season before, that crazy year where he made 3,000 runs in in 1925, he overtook Grace's century's tally of 126, and he was just getting started, really. In that 25 year, he hit 16 centuries in 41 innings, his most ever in a season. The only time he reached 3,000, that was of interest to me. Like, he was super consistent, but they're all massive seasons. But, you know, 28 times 3,000 runs have been made in an English year. He's only got one of them. Compton, the most a record that will never be beaten, I don't imagine. I can't imagine how. In 1947, Compton made 3,816 runs. Anyway, back to Hobbs. Another quirk here is that he made 16 double tons, but even that, Strikes me as a little bit light on. You know, 16 out of 197, doubling up, 199 indeed. If you limit it to just scores above 250, he only reached 250 three times out of his 199 tonnes. His highest score was in 1925. He's 266 unbeaten in the players versus gentlemen's game. His highest score before that, you've got to go to 1914 against Knotts when he made 226. So all the way through until he was 43, his highest score was 226 despite by that point making upwards of sort of 130 to 140 hundreds. Then he made 261 in 1926 against Oxford in the June of that year. So he's got the mood for these longer innings now in his mid-40s. And off he goes to Lords in August at the end of that year, the 28th of August specifically, against the old rivals, Middlesex. Surrey bat first, 
Hobbs and Andy Sandham, another final word fave, um, put on 115 for the first wicket. Name a more iconic story time duo. You can't. You can't. Not, 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 not that one came out wrong in the you end. You cannot. You cannot. You cannot. Um, uh, you are unable you to. You are unable so. to. Uh, that, that, that was... Uh, it, it would be nice to just have that as a as another way of saying it if you just wanted to, you know, like a see you next Tuesday sort of style thing, you know. Dear sir, you are unable to do so. <laughs> Thank you and goodbye. Gubby Allen's play for Middlesex, by the way, who if Dorcross was here, he'd, he'd um, refer to him as, as the traitor that he is. Andy Ducat, another man that you focused on before, Jeff, in a story time answer. He makes a quick 41 after Sandham's 58. Then Douglas Jardine in at five. Like, Jardine in 1926 still making his way. He's not the Surrey captain, certainly not the England captain, the, the Surrey captain's Percy Fender. Jardine and Hobbs put on 270, taking the score up to 528 for four. Hobbs bats through to the declaration, which comes at 579 for five. He's unbeaten on his only triple of his career, 316 not out. Only six hours and 55 minutes to get there, so they've no problem with the overrate. They bowled 140 overs in a day. 41 fours. He scored at more than 40 runs an hour. And just reading through one of his obits, he was known as a bit of a dasher before the war. So 40 runs per hour was his average through that stretch of time. That dropped way below in this really productive period after the war to like 30 runs an hour, but he was up above 40 in this innings. They rolled huh. Middlesex twice to win by an innings in 63. Hobbs adds three more double centuries after this one towards the end of his career. The final double was 221 against the West Indies on the 27th of May, 1933, when he was 51 years of age. So, I mean, we barely scratched the surface with this but you know the, the two conclusions I find here is that for all of his consistency in reaching three figures yeah there was um compared to his contemporaries there were far fewer doubles and far fewer like seasons up up and around 3,000 runs ago but here's my suggestion now I've got the feel for it got, got, got into the Hobbs rhythm next year will be 90 years since his final first class innings on the 5th of September next year I think that's when we should do a Jack Hobbs special. 90 years on from his final innings. Hopper Reed knocked him over in 1934. We touched on that last week. So it feels appropriate that we get to do this answer here. And I would like to come back to Hobbs in a more comprehensive way. All right. I like it. I like So we'd, we'd uh, a little as we did for Sachin's 50th birthday, we might um, find a few numbers that tie in with when we'll just make people have Jack Hobbs as an answer. <laughs> it won't be hard. There are so many numbers. It won't be. There are so, so many numbers there. And that is the end of our sequence of, well, not new numbers, but revisit numbers for today. If you want to send us a nerd pledge and get involved in this uh, absolute stupidity, please do. It's a great deal of fun. Patron.com slash the final word is the website where you can do that and help us with all of the other things that we're doing uh, over the next weeks and months, of which there is quite a bit. I've got a couple of confirmations as well. Sam Brown's $4.11. He said $4.11 was your first guess, which was Andrew Simon's bowling figures of 4 for 11 in a one-dayer versus India, which I briefly mentioned before going on to another answer. He bossed that game, very effective in the field. I loved your detour into the Australia versus New Zealand versus South Africa tri-series. My family was moving towns that summer and we stayed in a caravan park at the beach near Grafton all summer and I remember watching every match of that series on the tiny TV in that caravan and winning my dad's new work cricket tipping comp. Interesting 
but completely unintentional thread with the captains from my first two pledges. Glad you got to have some fun with it all. That's because I ended up at an answer of 41.1 overs that South Africa bowled out New Zealand in <laughs> in the final of the Tri-Series to end Steve Waugh's captaincy, <laughs> which was a roundabout way of getting there, but it was pretty good. I, I remember that summer, I won't say clearly, um, because I was in Mildura for a fair bit of it and there, there wasn't a lot to do up there except uh, altered states of thinking, but I definitely had some interesting thoughts about Adam Gilchrist's um, ability to slash the thing to third man for naught on what seems like many times, but was probably just once refracted out forever. <laughs> and Ian Colvin with 274 is our other confirmation. Loved hearing about Jack Badcock, Ken Farns and new favourite Spongy Thomas. A remarkable coincidence that you were having exactly the same correspondence with my Zahir Abbas soulmate. To make it more final, we're perfect. Today is actually my birthday on his birthday. And to put the cherry on the cherry, the birthday in question was the very same birthday as Sawanji Madanyaka, whose career we are all invested in as he hunts down a first-class cap after the age of 50. I have a year on Mr. Madanyaka, but in the event I ever play first-class cricket, I'll make myself available for an interview. I love this mad game you've accidentally created. Um, on this in, the Sri Lankan first-class uh, season was delayed due to the monsoon season that was playing out concurrent to that, which is why we weren't, weren't able to, with Indica, who we're, we're waiting to see whether he plays another game. But I believe this weekend is when it resumes. So we hopefully will know in time for our weekly show next week whether there has been uh, a player in the Sri Lankan domestic comp who isn't Sawanji, sadly. Um, playing into his 50s, which we touched on, yeah, I think two or three weeks ago on Storytime. So that seems a nice fitting way to finish it, going back to just to, to fill in that bit of information that, uh, um, yes, we have been keeping tabs on it, but the, the rain has been keeping them off the field. I also love this mad game we've accidentally created. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, everybody who has played, who has ever played No Pledge, um, and especially the ones who've played this week. Get involved. It's fun. You will have a good time. There is no reason not to. That's it, Storytime 152, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. By the time we next do Storytime, the World Cup will have started. Oh, that's staunting. Yuck. All right. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, this is going to be an interesting seven to eight weeks, Adam. You and I, we're just going to take a couple of deep breaths and get through it together. Yes, do join us for it. It's going to be a lot of fun. There will be daily shows every day. And the only reason we're able to do all of this stuff is because of yeah, the people who fund the show, the patrons. Patreon.com forward slash the final word. An awful lot more than that as well. There'll be meetups for World Cup games and, and all the rest of it, as there always is. So uh, join us and, and submit the pledge. And most importantly, have a nice week. See ya. I had to go about it.